so I think right now we're we're living in times that we can we can kind of say are just crazy and maybe in our lifetimes is what we think of in terms of uh, the governments and of the world and you know there's wars and rumors of wars and there's there's a there's a sense in which we we can be very discouraged by what's happening in the world um, and it's understandable but on the other side of this I, I think what what we're seeing through Ezra and Nehemiah is uh, some clarity some instruction some help for us uh, to to see this reality we can't control what happens out there but we can uh, align our hearts to the Lord Jesus in here, in the, in the church, as his people. And I think instead of uh, freaking out about all the things that are happening outside, that are outside of our control, uh, we should look at how we ought to align ourselves more and more to Christ as his church, as his people. And I do believe that the church uh, is uh, in the world, but not of the world, as the Bible says, right? And so we, yes, we live in this world and we're affected by what happens as were the people of Israel, but we are to be a, a, a distinct group of people that, that really just kind of say, you know what, haters are going to hate, and, and we have a, uh, a call to continue to press in towards Jesus. And I think what we're seeing in Ezra 3 gets us there, uh, at least in some way, it starts to get us there. Um, but before we get into the text, let me, let me just kind of set it up this way. Um, there's a little known fact about me, and maybe it's not as little known anymore, but I have a very unhealthy obsession with England. Um, I don't know why I'm this way. I just am. I, uh, I'm working on it. Um, not really, but I, I should work on it. Uh, when the queen passed away a while back, uh, Chris was so kind as to get me a photoshopped picture of me and her, uh, and that's on my desk. Uh, I have a bigger picture of me and the queen than I do of my family. It's a great thing. Um, but anyways, uh, he, but here's the thing. I've been to England once so far. I hope many more times, but the one time, and I don't say that to brag about, you know, being a world traveler or anything. I'm just saying I've been there once, okay? It was for like four days. Uh, but, but as I, I was really struck by something. It's, it's, a, it's a unique thing, especially when you're from the States. Um, they set up their towns very differently than we've set up our towns in most cases. Uh, when you go to a small village in England, you cannot, you literally cannot miss the church. It's just, boom. It's the biggest building. It's the tallest building. It's the most beautiful of all the buildings. Even in these little villages with very modest homes and modest buildings and little shops, you can't miss the church. The building, that is, right? This, it's a pro, it was prominent. It was built in the 1400s, 1500s, uh, back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago but it was, it was built to, to symbolize something. It, was, it, it showed the people uh, in, that, in that time, in that culture, in that country, and the value that they placed on corporate worship and particularly on creating a space where people can find their hope in Jesus. Now, we know, of course, that as time has gone on, as the centuries have moved on, much of England, as with our own country, has been moving uh, steadily away from that value. And, and there's a great deal of uh, secularism in uh, England today. You, you actually are kind of hard pressed to find a lot of Christians in that country. And that's a sad thing. And yet I have many friends uh, or several friends, I should say over there that are pastoring churches that are 
trying to make a dent in that. And, and God is doing still good things in that place and as he is here. Um, but, I, but I think it says something about the times that they lived in in those uh, 400, 500 years ago when they were building these buildings of the value they placed in the, the, the church and the worship of, of Jesus. Now today, we, we really don't build monuments like they did. And, and if you, when you go over to these European countries, there's many relics of the past um, that people can look at and go, that's what they valued back then. Now, if you go in our country, if you go to Washington, D.C. and some other places, you will see also these statues or these monuments that were built uh, to represent the values of the founding fathers and the past. And we, we, we recognize that. And sadly today, I think we're, we're seeing a, a cultural shift where we want to tear down those things rather than build them. Um, and that's a different issue than what I want to get to. But I think if there was something that could symbolize the time that we live in, uh, just as a Western culture, as a Western world, uh, I'm not speaking of other parts of the world, but particularly the U.S., Canada, uh, Europe, the West, as we would call it. Um, I think if we had to, to symbolize our time, it would be not the, the church, but it would be the smartphone. And why do I say that? Now, I don't say that in a weird way, like, oh, we're going to build this statue of the phone, but it, the phone represents our culture. It represents the, the temple of narcissism in some ways that we carry around in our pockets and we each have a perfectly curated version of the world for ourselves. We know that, we know this, this isn't conspiratorial, this is true that the, the companies that run social media, they have algorithms to make you see what you want to see. And so we only see the world as we live on these phones, uh, as we've kind of wired it to be, as we've clicked and liked and we just get more of that. And it's because we're living in a very individual uh, period of time. We're, we're, we're not seeing ourselves in, in terms of the, the community. We're seeing ourselves as human beings, as individuals who can just do whatever we want. And that's why I say that the phone is, is a representation of that. It's not that phones are all bad or anything. Um, but, I, but I think that it just it shows where things have shifted over many years. We're no longer focused on the central part of our community being the church. It's now ourselves. We've become narcissistic. And I don't mean that in a clinical way. I'm not saying if you go to a psychologist, everyone gets diagnosed that way. But we, what I mean by narcissism is, is the true meaning of the word, which is self-love. That we're focused on ourselves. That we look at ourselves and we want the world to be what we want it to be. That's a problem, and especially as Christians, that's a huge problem because Jesus keeps calling us to look away from ourselves, to look at him and to look at others and to see them as more important than ourselves. And so if we're here in this room as Christians, as, we, as followers of Jesus, we have to push back in some sense in our hearts, in our lives, against the constant pressure of individualism. And what we see in Ezra 3 is that happening uh, in the people of Israel. So let's get into the text here. I think that that sets it up for, uh, for, for seeing what we're going to see today. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, this tells us primarily what we need to see about this chapter. It says, When the seventh month came, 
and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So in context here, if you missed last week, chapters one and two show us that Cyrus, the king of Persia, has now uh, allowed for all the Babylonian people, the people who were brought into exile through the Babylonian captivity to go back to their land and to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their places of worship. And so you see in chapters one and two, God is stirring Cyrus's heart. He's bringing the people back to their land. Uh, Many of them, many of these exiles do return, although not all of them. It was an optional thing for them to do. But we see at the very end of chapter two that the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and all the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So you see the people getting reestablished in their land, setting up their towns, setting up their community. And then you fast forward to the seventh month. Now that's not the seventh month of when they got there. That's the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which is uh, a significant month for the Jewish people. The, we, we would call those that month September, October uh, in that time frame. But the seventh month on the Jewish calendar was one of the most significant months that there was in terms of worship. The first day of the seventh month was a call to solemn rest. And then the 10th day of the month was the day of atonement, the day in which all the sins of the people from that year were, were transferred from themselves to an animal, a sacrificial lamb. And then the 15th day of the seventh month began a week-long festival called the Festival of Booths which is when they would uh, all live in tents uh, together to, to remember and to symbolize their, their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So instead of living in the comfort of the homes that they built, they would take a week and live in the discomfort of a tent and, and remind themselves of God's provision and goodness to them. And this was something that uh, was commanded of the Lord for them to do every seventh month. And much of Israel's history um, they ignored this and they didn't do what God called them to do. And, and so that's largely why they were brought into exile is because they ignored these festivals and these commands and these Sabbaths and, and they were not obeying and worshiping the Lord as they were called to. And so what you see in verse one is that this seventh month comes and what happens? The children of Israel who were in the towns, they were setting up their homes They gathered as one man, it says, to Jerusalem. Meaning that the whole group of exiles who have now returned to their home are setting up their houses, they're rebuilding their houses, they're planting their gardens, they're getting their lives lives reestablished after 70 years of not living in the land. And then they drop it all and they go to Jerusalem and they gather as one this, this unified gathering. This is what fundamentally worship is. It's a unifier. The people of Israel came from different tribes, different towns. They probably had different individual priorities. But when they came together in Jerusalem for this month to celebrate the feast of, of the festival of booths and the uh, and to, to continue to set up the worship of God again, they were 
unified together as one man. And in some sense, I think that this symbolizes what the church would ultimately be as well as a great unifier. And I mean, the church globally is a great unifier. We are, we are centered on Jesus Christ. And I know different local churches are not always as centered on Christ as they should be. But, but together, the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a, a representation of the unity that Christ has purchased through his blood. It is a gathering of believers across uh, time zones, across nations, across languages, across ethnicities, gathering around Jesus Christ for worship. And there will come a day, though our current expression of the church has to be by, by nature of space and time, we can't all worship as one in these days. We worship as local churches. And that's okay, and that's good. That's what Paul uh, continued to bring about as he and his friends began to make the gospel known to the Gentiles, the established local churches. But there will come a day when we were, we were all gathered together again as God's people through all times, throughout all languages and tribes and nations. So the, but the local church should be a microcosm of that. We should see a unifying work even in our own local church where we come together from different perspectives and different uh, uh, ethnicities perhaps or different socioeconomic places and we should be able to come into a place together and gather around Jesus and be unified in him. And so we see this happening where the people of Israel laid aside their individual efforts of building their homes and planting their gardens and getting their lives reestablished and they just dropped it and said, all right, for, for right now, we're going to do what God calls us to do and gather as one man to Jerusalem. Well, let's keep reading. Let's read down to verse 6. It says, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the festival of or the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Okay, so here's, this is giving us the description of what they did as they gathered in Jerusalem as one man. They reestablished the worship of God. Remember that they had been scattered across the Babylonian empire. They were torn away from their land, their homes. They weren't worshiping as a, as a people for 70 years. They were separated from one another. Now they come back together. And the first thing, the highest priority that they have is to reestablish worship. That says something of our lives. 
And, and this, of course, is the Old Testament context of worship, right? With the altars and the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals. And we know that Jesus Christ is the substance that all of that is just a shadow of. And we know that Jesus Christ fulfills the sacrificial system and he fulfills the feasts and the festivals. And we're no longer obligated to obey those, those commands because Christ did it for us. But what this shows us, what this points us to is the reality that Jesus Christ is and must be the priority of our worship and our lives. They, they left their, the land of Babylon. They came back, they established their homes and then they just got to work not only in rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their homes, but to reestablish worship. They rebuilt the altar. They reinstituted the festival, the Feast of Booths. They, they began to actually do what God had called them to do from the beginning from Moses. So the, the reality is, is that they could have very easily made excuses here, right? They could have gotten back to their land. This, this probably would have been a multi-month journey from Babylon to Israel by foot and by camel or whatever other animals they had. They, they traveled for months. Then they had to get to work and setting up a safe place to live because there's still people around who are dangerous. That references, there's a reference in verse three to the peoples of the land who they were afraid of. So there's a lot of things that could have pri- they could have prioritized. They could have prioritized their safety. They could have prioritized their, their home, homesteads. They could have done a lot of these things first. But what they do is they prioritize worship instead of getting settled in. And they could have made excuses like, well, yeah, we'll get there. But, but first we should probably do this. They didn't do that. They took the precedence of God's call on their lives and they set up the worship again. They re- reinstituted it. They, I think actually what's happening here is that the people of Israel learned, at least the ones who returned to their home, learned the lessons that they were to learn. They went into Babylonian captivity because they had failed to love the Lord and to do what he calls them to do. And they wanted to get started off right now as they came back home. It doesn't last forever, but, but they, they're starting well. And, and I think that that's something that we should take to heart is that priority of worship should not be just, well, I'll get to it if I get to it. But that it should be the way we set up our lives and our rhythms. And it's really the only way, the only way to not live a self-absorbed, self-centered, narcissistic or meaningless life is to put ourselves before the Lord in worship, to remember what he has done and to align our hearts to it. Another thing we're seeing in this, these first six verses is this, that worship, while it must be prioritized, it also must be done according to the scriptures. We see this twice. We see it at least twice in verse 2 and verse 4. Look at verse 2. It says uh, that they, at the very end, it says they did all this, right? They rebuilt the, temp, uh, the, the, the altar as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And then down in verse 4, it says, They kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered daily burnt offerings according to the rule. In, in other words, the, the people of Israel realigned their worship. They prioritized it, but they did it 
according to the scriptures. This shows us something important for our lives as well. Although we live in a different time than they did and we live under a different uh, testament or different covenant, we live in the new covenant, not the old, this still teaches us a principle that I think is important, that we don't just get to come into worship and make it up as we go. We ought to do what God's word tells us to do. And that's why uh, the things we do, the things we incorporate in our Sunday gathering is as much as possible, as much as we've been able to see from the word of God, right? We don't, we don't want to do anything that's outside of God's intention or will, not, not with um, malice or, or bad motives, right? We want to do that which God calls us to do, which is why we sing, because the Bible tells us to sing to the Lord. It's why we read the scriptures. The Bible tells us to read the scriptures. It's why we see the preaching of the word happening on Sunday morning because the New Testament apostles modeled preaching the word. We, we, we do what we do because it's, a, it's from the scriptures. We are people of the book. We can't allow our lives to just do this the way we want. The reason why the people of Israel were, were judged by God was largely because they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. And now this group of pilgrims coming back home said, we're going to do it according to the law of Moses. We're going to go back to his word. So we try to align ourselves with that as well. Thirdly, um, let's, let's actually read a little chunk of this here. Verse 7 um, down to uh, verse 11. It says, uh, so they gave money to the masons and carpenters. Now, the reason for that is because the house of the Lord had not, the temple foundation had not yet been laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had, that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So that's all, all that's telling us is that the temple has to be reconstructed and they don't have any materials to do that. So they're, they're taking money that Cyrus gave them, this grant that, that he had given them to do this work, and they're paying uh, some Gentiles to go over to Lebanon and bring cedars, uh, timber to them. And then they're getting the, the masons to do the stonework and the carpenters to do the building. Okay, verse 8. In the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. So now we're fast forwarding to the second year that they were in the land in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of, of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout 
and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So these verses fast forward us a year in, into the, the future from what we just read uh, about the seventh month. Now you're a year ahead and the, the materials are there for the foundation of the temple to be built. And it's recording for us that it got built. It's, it's been this high priority of the people of Israel to rebuild the temple because the temple was vital to the proper worship of God. That's why God had it built to begin with. It represented his presence among the people. And so after the initial act of worship, the people come back the next year to begin laying the foundation of this temple. And they're celebrating. As, it, as it's laid, it says that they sang responsively and praised and gave thanks to the Lord. And here's what they sang together. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. What this shows us about their worship and what it shows us about ours is that worship makes God's goodness and his love the focus. We, we should always align ourselves with this, that when we gather in worship, we are to focus on the character of God and the work he has done in his steadfast love for us, ultimately through Jesus. They didn't have the fullness of God's steadfast love on display. They had part of it, and they knew what they knew. Now we have the fullness of God's love on display in the person of Jesus Christ, and we all the more ought to make his love and his goodness seen and the focus of what we are called to do. It's all about God and his glory. That's what worship is. It's not about us. It's not, they're not singing responsively and praising and giving thanks for their ability to build this temple. They're giving thanks to the Lord because he is good. So we see that reality and we need to align ourselves that God's goodness and love should be the, the primary thing that we do when we get, gather together. Okay, what, one, more, one more section here. Verse 12 and 13. This is an interesting scene that we see. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. This is really interesting. And so it's a detail we're, we're given that's uh, worth noting. You have the, the people, the young men particularly, are shouting for joy that the temple foundation has been laid and that the construction of this beautiful temple will begin. But then you have some old men. We're told that these old men uh, remembered the first house or the first temple. That these old men had lived to see the original thing before the Babylonian captivity. These men were probably 80 years old at this point. They had, they'd have to be around that because 70 years they've been out of their land. So 
if they were maybe five, they might have remembered, but probably they'd have to be a little older than that to have memories of, of this. So these are men who are old. And what are they doing? They're not shouting for joy. They're weeping. What is that? There's this mixture of, of response to this event. Some joyful, some sorrowful. What's happening here? Well, I think that the old men are showing us that there's, there, this is bringing back to their minds first the, the glory of the original temple that Solomon built. And I think in some ways they're seeing this as going to be less impressive and less prominent. But I think there's something even more happening here. I think what they're seeing is how reduced everything has become. They remember what it was and they know they're never going to get back there. But why were they reduced? That's, I think, the key to why they're responding this way. They were reduced because of sin. And they went into exile because of their rebellion against God, that the people had broken covenant with him. And these old men, these men who are in their 70s and 80s, are remembering what it was, seeing what it is, and they're not celebrating, they're weeping. They're weeping because I think they they recognize that all of this is happening because of their sinfulness. So what this teaches us, I think, about worship is that worship is always going to be a mixture of joy and a reminder of our sin and our need for Jesus. Worship, when we gather into this place, we are both celebrating what God has done for us in Christ and also reminding ourselves of how far we fall short. That there is a, there is a mixed thing here happening as we, as we gather. And I think we need to remember and learn something from the weeping in this passage. I think we need to remember that sin will endanger us Sin will ruin your life. Sin will steal your joy. Sin will make it so that even when you are redeemed by Jesus, there are still consequences that remain. We should hate our sin. And as we gather into worship, we should remember that Jesus did all that we could not to forgive us of our sin and to bring us into fellowship with him. Paul highlights this in Romans chapter 5. It says, verse 6 through 11, For while we were still weak, that word could be translated helpless, at the right time Christ died. For who? For the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified or made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This passage shows us 
the, the two-sided coin of salvation. It shows us that our need is dire and great. Our sin is abundant. We are described as ungodly, as enemies of God, as under the wrath of God. That's where we stood. But God, being so merciful, showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is good news, but, it's, but good news comes on the tail of bad news. We, to receive the good news of Jesus, we first have to receive the bad news that we are totally sinful and broken and helpless and unable to save ourselves. And when we come to that conclusion and we turn to Jesus, we receive his grace. So there's two things here. We need to hate our sin and in an ongoing way, even as people redeemed by Jesus, we should hate our sin and continue to pursue him with our lives. And we should embrace the joy of the forgiveness we have through Christ. There's two sides to that coin as Christians. We're, we're called to both. We're seeing both ma- mingled in this story in Ezra, the joy and the weeping. And that really is a summation of the Christian life. There is joy rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we've received reconciliation. Yes. But why did we need to receive reconciliation? Because of our sin. And, our, and we even as Christians still, in an ongoing way, struggle to love him. So we're called to both weeping and rejoicing. And all of it comes to a conclusion in Christ for us. We see here God's love on display. So one, one quick thing before I close us in prayer. Don't believe for a moment that your sin disqualifies you from the love of God. Your sin is a prerequisite to the love of God. That's, that's a reality, right? Now, we could talk back at the Garden of Eden and go, well, what happened if Adam and Eve never sinned? That's unicorns and rainbow nonsense. It doesn't, it's not the world we live in. We live in the world in which everyone is a sinner. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. So your sin does not disqualify you from the love of God. It is a prerequisite to embracing the love of God. Own that. Stop pretending you're not a sinner. Embrace that you are a sinner, but embrace most of all that Jesus Christ came to forgive you and take away the punishment, the wrath, and, and all that your sin has, sin has incurred. And as you do that, you begin to truly live the life you're called to live. A life not narcissistically self-absorbed, but a life focused on worship and his glory and his goodness. Praise the Lord, right? That he is good and his steadfast love endures forever in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you that as sinners, we can come to you, not to be pushed away, but to be embraced and loved and redeemed and we pray that our hearts would, would not allow us to resist that, but to actually really live within the, the reality of it. So God, help us now as we turn our attention to singing in response to you, as we turn to going to the table and reminding ourselves of your death through your body and blood on the cross. We pray uh, that our hearts would be drawn to, to where they ought to be. And we ask that your spirit would get us there. 
In Jesus' name, amen.